0: And I want to say good morning and welcome. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you, if you would, to join me in the book of Genesis at the very beginning of your Bible as we are going to be looking in Genesis chapter 3 in just a few moments. As we're continuing on in a sermon series that we began last week, and if you are our guest, I wanted to to say a special welcome to you. My name is Will. I get the privilege to serve as pastor here, and I hope on your way in you were greeted uh, by some loving um, brothers and sisters in Christ, and you received a gift bag on your way in, if you did, um, there should be in there a connect card. We would love for you to fill that out and leave it in your seat when you leave so that we might know how we can better connect with you in ministry. If you didn't get one of those coming in, there should be one in one of the chair backs in front of you. We'd love for you to fill that out and um, leave that again in your seat that we might uh, better connect with you in ministry. We started this series last week that we have titled Refocus. Because prayerfully, uh, as your pastor and as a staff, we believe that we are in a place, as a church, that we need to refocus. We need to refocus our efforts. We need to refocus our attention on what matters the most in this world. What matters the most to us. What matters the most to Christianity, which is Jesus Christ himself. And so we started a sermon series last week looking at the topic of the gospel Because the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have a tendency to underestimate. We oftentimes put it in a box, a box that is for someone else or for me at a past place in my life. But in reality, the gospel is the story of the entire Bible. And so we were looking at the Bible from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, as the Bible unveils, as God unveils through his word, his plan of rescue and redemption for all people. And for you and for me. And the message that we need week in and week out. Last week we talked about the beginning of all things in creation, that God created the world. And you can see this image, this is kind of the story arc of Scripture. It's inverted from most, if you've studied any type of literature or have any background in, in an English major, you know most plot lines go up to a climax and then come down to a resolution at the end. But what we find in the Bible, in the Bible's gospel story, is that it never actually comes down. Instead, the Bible begins with God's good design in creation and descends from there into problems. The Juds have an old song in which they're having a conversation with grandpa. And they ask grandpa to tell them about the good old days. And the chorus of that song goes, Did lovers really fall in love to stay? Stand beside each other, come what may. Was a promise really something people kept, not just something they would say? Did families really bow their heads to pray? Did daddies really never go away? Oh, Grandpa, tell me about the good old days. I don't know about you, but maybe there's a memory in your life or a place in your life that when you think about it, it just wells up this spirit of nostalgia in you. When you look back at a a better time or a better place, there's a longing inside of each and every one of us for days gone by, days that were more familiar, days that were safer, days that were more moral, days that we are more comfortable with. That nostalgia for that time gone by, though, according to Scripture, is a not-so-subtle echo within our spirits that things aren't the way that they're meant to be. The constant looking over our shoulder and longing for some better existence, better experience, is explained and justified in God's Word because any time that we attempt to understand our world, any religious worldview must account for this longing inside of us that we experienced and we talked about and left off with last week. There's a longing in every little child and even every single adult to be able to speak to an animal, right? How ridiculous is it that you can be sitting in a chair and the dog walks up and you go, hey buddy, how you doing? As though you expect it to talk back to you. There's a longing inside of us in every little boy to have an adventure, to conquer evil, to experience animals that interact every little girl like lucy in the chronicles of narnia who longs to dance with the trees again there's a longing for something and that every worldview has to explain that longing but every worldview also must explain why things aren't the way that we want them to be they have to explain the brokenness that we all experience in our world as I said last week, we looked at God's good design. The creation is the story of God's good design for the world. And we saw that his good design, his intention, would manifest itself in a harmony that existed throughout creation. As man existed in a perfect, unhindered relationship with God. As men, mankind existed in a, in a perfect and unhindered relationship with one another. And also with the world around them. But when we look at the world around us, we don't see that same harmony. We don't see goodness. And we're left asking the question, longing for an answer, what went wrong? And the Bible gives us that answer in Genesis chapter 3. So look with me, if you will, in Genesis chapter 3, and we will read and look at the entire chapter together this morning. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come now before your word, I pray that we would be a people submitted and surrendered to it. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our eyes. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, to our minds, that in this passage of Scripture, you would lead us to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. To his feet where we receive grace. Grace that we don't deserve. Where we find the ultimate covering of our guilt and of our shame. In the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. May we be people who are not on guard this morning, but open to be pricked by your word. Pierced by your conviction. That we might be those who come quickly into your presence in need of your grace. And let us experience, Father God, once again, that you are always willing to give us far more than we could ever ask or imagine if we would just present ourselves as poor and needy before you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. We're at a point in our study where we had to break at the end of chapter 2 Genesis, but I want you to understand that Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 are actually one story, beautifully written together, so that we see you have to read all of Genesis chapter 2 and all of Genesis chapter 3 together together. As the end of Genesis chapter 3 mirrors the beginning of Genesis chapter 2 and on and on, the language is similar. It is a beautifully written story that is all one story of God's good design and how that design was broken. It explains not only the origins of the world, but it explains the world that we inhabit and the world that we experience. Genesis chapter 2, we ended last week with man and woman in perfect harmony with one another. Moses ends chapter 2 saying that the man and woman were both naked and they were not ashamed. Talk about a different world. Talk about a different experience. Think about how scandalous it would be and how scandalized you would be and my wife would be if I stood here naked and preached one day. Our culture is not a culture Of openness and vulnerability, the picture of their nakedness and lack of shame is a picture of the intimacy, the oneness, the harmony that existed between the husband and his wife, the man and the woman, which was supposed to then expand to all of human society. It shows their openness to the creation around them, their openness before the the Lord himself. But this harmony is interrupted as we turn the page to chapter 3 by the introduction of this new creature, the serpent, whose deceit instigates what theologians throughout history have often called what we're studying this morning the fall. And the first seven or so verses of chapter 3 explain what happened in the fall. In the fall, we find sin enters into the world. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Why do we refer to this as the fall? It is a falling from grace. It is a falling from God's presence. It is a falling short of God's glory. The Bible uses many different terms to talk about sin, but one of the most prevalent terms to talk about sin is a word that indicates that something has fallen short of a target. If you were to put a target in the back of the room and I was to stretch out a bow and I was to shoot an arrow across this room and the arrow were to fall short of the target, that is the word that is oftentimes used in the Old Testament. One of the words to describe sin. What we see here is that man and woman fall far short of God's target, his intended design. That they live in harmony with one another, in harmony with his creation, in harmony ultimately with him. A harmony that is dependent upon him and manifested through their obedience to his one and only command. In obeying the command to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they expressed their faith and trust in God to give them what wisdom and knowledge they needed. But that's not what happens in this passage of Scripture And as we look in these verses, we see a few different parts. The serpent comes in and he deceives the woman. The opening verses, verses 1 through 6, explain the serpent's deception. He's introduced as a a beast that is more crafty than any other creature. So that should warn the reader that as this serpent comes into the picture, if he's more crafty than anyone else, including the woman, that maybe we should be wary of what he says. And we find out that we need to be wary of what he says. Because immediately when he comes into the picture, he breaks the pattern that we have seen so far in Genesis chapter 2, and that we'll see again when God comes onto the scene in verse 8 of chapter 3. I pointed out to you last week that in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, the most common way that the author refers to God is the combination of two gods, or two words, the Lord God. It is the the combination of Elohim, the word for God who is sovereign and over the universe and distant and far and and who is the ultimate authority over all things, and the covenant name of God, Yahweh, Lord, which is the name of God's relational nature, His relationship with His people. So throughout Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, Moses wants to communicate that God is not only the God who is far off, God is the God who is near and in relationship with his people. But here, you'll see that Satan only uses the word Elohim. He completely ignores the relational component of God's relationship and his nature. God is only some distant, far-off despot who wants to somehow keep back from these his creation a good gift of knowledge and wisdom and understanding. After all, who wouldn't want knowledge and wisdom and understanding? Who doesn't need knowledge and wisdom and understanding? But this far-off, far-away God is keeping it from you. So he brings in this notion of separation of God, and his shrewdness is evident throughout the things that he says. When he first asks the question, it's, an, it's a twisted Qu- uh, quotation of God's original command that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. It's not what God said. God said you can freely eat of any tree in the garden except one. Satan also is deceptive in the way that he comes into things because as he comes into this, this, this place he is taking the, the, the organization or the, the authority that God has given in the world and the structure that God has built into the world and he flips it on its head. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, you find that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God creates the man in Genesis chapter 2 as he forms him from the dust of the ground. And then he takes from his side a rib, and out of that rib he forms the woman. Adam is then given, before Eve is even created, Adam is given the command by God. And we talked last week about the need and the very design of God from the beginning that man would take the lead, that man would bear the responsibility of accountability, and where there is accountability, there must be authority. And so God gives man the authority. Man and woman then together as, co- as, as, as partners within one another, complementary partners with different roles and responsibilities are then called together by God for this creation mandate that they would be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion over the earth. The woman brought together to the equation her unique piece of the puzzle. In the be fruitful and multiply, she would be the one who would bring forth the heirs who would then go out from the Garden of Eden and extend the image of God around the world. That's her unique role and responsibility in the creation mandate. The man's unique role and responsibility in the creation mandate we saw last week is that God put him in the garden to tend it and to keep it. Man would work the ground. And together, his offspring and would, would then extend numerically, but then also in their charge and in their authority as they dominated the world, not in a, a negative, sinful sense, but in a godly sense. So God designed it in such a way that God is the ultimate authority who creates the man. The man and woman then together under the authority of God rule the world. But what we see immediately in Genesis chapter 3 is a creature comes to the woman who then gives to the man who then blames God for the whole thing. And we see Satan flip God's authority structure on its head. And he speaks these half-truths where he questions God. And you have to ask the question, does he really dishonest because he says you're not surely going to die god said in the day that you eat of it you will surely die satan says that's not the case he says in the days that you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will know good and evil and then you get to the end of genesis chapter three and what does god himself say man has become like one of us knowing good and evil so is satan really lying it's a question that we have to ask and what we find in the rest of genesis chapter two is yes He is a very shrewd liar speaking very detailed half-truths. Any good lawyer can learn from Satan's ability to toe a line because their openness, their eyes being opened, is not in the way that they expected. The death, though it does not come immediately, is infinitely greater than they ever possibly expected. And so we see the serpent's deception. We also see the woman's desire Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, at the beginning says, When the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eye, and the tree was desired to make one wise. The word for desire there is the same word that we'll find in Exodus chapter 20, when God says, Thou shalt not covet. She sees this and she covets something that is not hers something is that is not hers to take. It is instead something that is God's to give. But instead, she takes it upon herself by her action and by her words as she echoes the language of the serpent, calling him only God and not the Lord God. You see here a distancing of herself, a relational distancing of herself even before she disobeys. As she sees God as far off and she has given sway to the, the, the temptation of the devil here. And what we find is language that is almost blasphemous as she now sees that the tree is good. She takes of the tree and she eats. Those two words should ring forth in our mind if we've read through Genesis chapter 1 where God saw what he created and declared it to be good. And earlier in Genesis chapter 2, he takes the man and places him in the Garden of Eden. She is reaching out and not only taking what is only God's to give, she is reaching out and she is usurping his authority altogether as she sees something and declares it to be good and she reaches out and takes what is not hers in the first place. And then together she and Adam then continue the usurpation of God's authority and God's role as they then together make something out of the world as they try to make coverings for themselves. She hears that echo, you will become like God. And that is the heart of sin. Every single sin in the world is ultimately a rebellion and a usurping of God's authority, believing that we know better. It's a desire to reach out and take what is only God's to give. And from the beginning, we have been an impatient people, slow to wait upon the Lord, and wanting instead to do things in our own strength to reject God's way, to reject God's plan, and to do it our own way and in our own strength. And part of the problem that instituted this is not just the woman's desire, the man's disobedience. What started the whole thing, though, as he is disobedient is he's passive from the beginning. It's often been said, and many people have beaten women up throughout the years, that it's, it's Eve's fault. If Eve had just eaten that apple, which, by the way, it wasn't an apple, guys. Okay, I don't know where and why. It wasn't an apple, okay? Who knows? We don't, we don't know what it was, all right? But if Eve hadn't just, if she just hadn't eaten that fruit, everything would have been fine. But if you read throughout the rest of the Bible, you read throughout the rest of this passage of Scripture, the fall is never tied to her deception. It is always tied to man's disobedience. And that disobedience didn't just begin when he ate of the fruit. It began when he chose to be silent, because he was there the whole time. As this serpent comes and begins denying the very word of God that he had heard directly from the mouth of God, and he sits back silent. And into the void of leadership, the woman is forced. And in being forced into a position that she's not equipped for, she's easily overtaken. That was Satan's attack plan then. Brothers and sisters, that's Satan's attack plan now. We must be careful as a church, as as children of God, to be vigilant to the doctrine and the truth and the word of God. We must be vigilant to function according to the structures that God has given because there is blessing in the way that God has designed things. Brothers and sisters, when I go to a family function and it's time to eat... And the question comes up, who's going to bless the food? Well, God's going to bless the food, but who's going to pray and bless the food? Oftentimes people look to me and say, oh, well, well, you're the pastor. You should pray. And I say no almost every single time. Because I'm not the pastor of my family. I'm the pastor of this congregation. God designed families to be led by the men. And there's something powerful that takes place when the oldest living male in a family prays over his family. And I always say, go find whoever's the oldest man and ask him to pray. If he refuses, go to the next. If he refuses and it comes down to me, then I'll pray. The only time I step up and pray in those environments is when I'm not sure if it's even a believing family or if I'm around unbelievers in my family. Because there's something powerful about adhering to the authority structures that God has placed in this world, and we must be vigilant to keep that. Because brothers and sisters and ladies, I told you this was coming last week, so here you go. This was the problem then. Paul says it's going to be the problem. It was the problem in his church, and it's the problem in our church. Because according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says in the last days it's going to be chaotic. And he says, among the chaos... There are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. Where there are men who refuse to step up and stand up for the truth, there are women who will step into the void of leadership and be vulnerable. Ladies, you might not like that. I'll probably get all kinds of nasty emails this week. not saying that you're nasty, but you won't like that. But let's be real honest. Most modern heresy that exists in the world is not marketed to men. It's not men who are bringing the shack into the church. It's not men who are passing it around to their brothers and sisters. It's not men who are listening to Oprah and the the false heretical principles of the secret and passing that along to one another. That if I just release things into the universe, the universe will bring good things back to me. Brothers and sisters, we must be vigilant. We must be alert. We must be aware. Men must stand up. Women must stand up. We must be on guard for what we are allowing into our minds and into our hearts and then into our congregations and into one another's lives. And as we face the challenge of the church moving forward, we must be those who are willing to submit to God's authority. We must be willing when to come before him and surrender to the way that he has created things to be. We must seek God first. We must be willing to wait on Him. But waiting on Him is often difficult because waiting on Him just simply exposes the depth of our disobedience. Because not only would we see the fall in this passage of Scripture, but the rest of this passage of Scripture, we see the fallout. And I'm running really long on my sermon right now, so I'm going to try my best to do this as quickly as I possibly can, as faithfully to Scripture as we possibly can. We see in the rest of the chapter that there are consequences to man and woman's sin. The most immediate consequence in the fallout of the disobedience of Adam and his wife is we see how sin separates. God intended the world to exist in a harmony, as in a relationship with one another. But the words of the serpent prove to be true, as I said earlier, but not in the way that the man and the woman expected. Their eyes are indeed open, but not to the secrets of divine knowledge. Instead, their eyes are open to their nudity, that they are (laughs) naked, and so that you understand the, 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 I said this is a beautifully structured passage of Scripture, so that you understand the play on words that the author puts in this passage of Scripture. I'm going to just destroy English for a minute. The shrewdity of the serpent exposes the nudity of the people. The play on words that this serpent is the shrewdest creature in all of god's creation is a play is a sound alike of a word for the nudity and so the shrewdity of the serpent exposes the nudity of the people and their reaction then to the exposure of their nudity is shame shame fueled by guilt sin always brings guilty conscience con- uh, guilty conscience always leads to shame and shame always leads to hiding and so they attempt to hide themselves And hide their shame first from one another as they attempt to create for themselves a covering out of the good creation that God has put around them. They're hiding from one another. Those who were designed for a mutual companionship, a oneness, a deep intimacy are now afraid to stand in one another's presence. Then they attempt to hide from God. When they hear him in the garden, they hide from him because they are afraid. Guilt doesn't only bring shame, it brings fear. Fear of being found out, fear of being exposed, and so we hide. And hiding is just a form of lying. It's a form of pretending that everything's fine, everything's okay, everything's the way that it's supposed to be. And this is where this most often manifests in our own lives today. We're hiding, we're hiding from God. Adam and Eve, from the very beginning, when God came into the garden, they hid from his presence. And you and I are functionally hiding from God in a million different ways. And we're hiding from God in the midst of the very thing that he created to be beautiful and for our good. Most often, we are hiding from God inside the church. Hiding behind all of our programs and performances. Hiding behind... So many different things where we're trying to get God's attention. Hiding in our penance as we pretend that we are somehow able to atone for our own sin. Hiding from God in our prayerlessness. Because let's be real honest, when we get alone with God and we sit silent in His presence, what ends up happening is we get uncomfortable because there we are exposed before the holy gaze of God and no one wants to stand there naked and ashamed. And so we run from Him. We don't read His Word. We don't pray. When we gather together, we're afraid to be vulnerable with one another. And we are the I'm fine culture. It's okay culture. As we hide from God and hide from one another. For our church, for our family, we must be willing to first and foremost sit and seek God's presence. Sit in the presence of God. Wait for the filling of God. We can continue to perform all day long. And what we will find out is every time that we attempt to do this in our own strength, we'll fall far short of the glory of God. And that's our problem in the church today. When we realize this nostalgia in us that something has gone wrong, what is our immediate response? Our immediate res- response is, what do we have to do to fix it? And so we attempt again and again for a new program, more people. If we just get it, the, 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 the strength, more preaching, more prayer, more all of these different things, the stuff that we do for Jesus... If we can just keep the engines going long enough, God will show up eventually. Because we completely bypass the need to wait on God. Because when we wait on God, what God is going to do is God is going to, like we talked about last week with CPR, start pumping on our chest. And what is inside of us that shouldn't be there is inevitably going to come out. And when that comes out, it gets ugly. And we don't like to be ugly. We don't like to have the honest conversation from the pulpit. We want to fake it until we make it. We want smiles. We want good things. We don't need this challenge from the pulpit, Pastor. Let's just keep on going. You want to have these conversations? Have these conversations in private. No, thank you. We're going to have these conversations publicly because I've never been more convinced of a direction for our church than I am right now. And if that means I get the boot, Good luck to you. As a church family, we have something wrong. And we must seek God first for the answer and get back to our dependence upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Finally, sin leads to the ultimate separation, which is death, as they're driven from his presence. Not just a physical death, but they are driven out of the garden. But sin doesn't only bring death, it brings suffering You'll see in the next, as God begins to address each individual in the disobedience, you'll see that every single one of his statements to them carries two things. First, there is a statement of suffering. The serpent is going to suffer humiliation. The woman is going to suffer in the pain of childbearing. The man is going to suffer in a pain in working on the ground. And this is where we find ourselves most often. I told you last week in that, that gospel J-curve that you see where you find a lot of people is in that longing for something better. But where you'll find yourself and most of the world and the on-ramp to the gospel of Jesus Christ is in the suffering of those that are around you. We are in a suffering world. We don't like to point it out. We don't like to talk about it. But instead, there is a cry inside of every single person that screams out, it's not supposed to be that way. It's not supposed to be this way. And in this pain, we experience a fallen world. And we are so often impatient with the pain of everyone else, but we want the world to sympathize with our pain. But the truth is that because sin is in the world, we're all victims of its presence. We are victims of the sins of those that are around us. We are victims in another way. We're victims of the presence of sin. And the ultimate suffering is the reign of death. Sin also brings strife you'll see that not only is there a component of suffering in every one of the statements, there's also an element of strife. The serpent will strive against the seed of the woman. The woman will strive against the man. The man will fight with the world. And ultimately, you see in the end that man will fight with God. God says to the serpent, he said, your offspring and her offspring will continue to fight until eventually you will lose. Then there's this mysterious language in chapter, or verse 16. Where God says to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. There's a lot of question about what that means, but the answer is not far away. It's actually over in Genesis chapter 4. If your if your Bible's like mine, you can just look on the next page. As God says to, a, to, to Cain in verse 7, that if you do well, um, you will, not, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you but you must rule over it. It's the exact same statement, just with a different person. What God is talking about here, for ladies, this desire for your husband is not a good thing. The ESV, I think, go ahead, goes ahead and interprets it in its newer translations where it says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Instead of this peaceable relationship of, of oneness and intimacy, there will be a striving against one another for the direction of the home. There will be a striving against one another for the place and position of authority. And there will be a fight that ensues in which a man shall rule over you. If you want to know the tire that's inevitably going to fall off your marriage? This is it. This struggle and this strife for who is in charge. For the man, there's a fighting as the world is now cursed. There's only two curses in this passage of Scripture. The one to the serpent, the other to the world. The innocent bystander, the creation from which we were created, which we were meant to guard and keep, is now cursed because of our actions. And it will now fight against us as it shall bring forth thorns and thistles. And so the man and the woman are now cursed. They're suffering and they're striving at the very core of God's good design for them. Remember the creation mandate? that they would be fruitful and that they would multiply and that they would exercise dominion over all of the earth, whereas that was meant to be pleasurable and where that was meant to be glorifying to the God, now it is filled with pain. As every time that the woman wants to bring forth a new seed, a new offspring that eventually is going to culminate in this promise of the one who's going to defeat the serpent, she must now do it in pain. And as the man attempts to care for and, take, and and tend and keep the garden and provide for his family, he will now do it in pain as it fights back. But ultimately what you see at the very end is now God must place a cherubim with a sword, in, with, in, with a sword at the entrance to the garden to keep us out. If there's not a picture of strife and struggle and enmity, I don't know what is. A sword that's constantly swiping. A a sword that has this image, it's a flaming sword, almost like a zigzagging flash of lightning to keep anyone and everyone out. And we see in Scripture that we are enemies of God. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And there is the ultimate hope, that despite the fallout, that there is hope. And that hope will come in the future, as God first and foremost promises victory. In verse 15, God gives this veiled promise of one who will come, who will crush the head of the serpent, and in doing so will be crushed. The word bruise, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, it's the same word. So whatever it is that this offspring does to the head of the serpent is exactly what the serpent does to his heel. And so this wounded warrior, this wounded victor, is going to defeat the enemy. And the enemy is Satan, the devil, and the enemy is death. And we find in Jesus Christ that because of his finished work, because he gave his life that we might be saved, Paul is able to sing out in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Death will be defeated. The devil will be defeated. Victory is promised even in this passage of Scripture. But beyond that, we also see that grace is provided. As we look to the future, victory is promised and grace is provided. We'll see this next week. Next week we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, so you can write that down. Hebrews chapter 9 is where we're going next as we talk about the rescue. Because we see in this, whereas Adam and Eve attempted to cover themselves and did so in the most inadequate of ways, God provides them with a perfect covering. Why did Adam and Eve not certainly die? Why did they not drop dead as soon as they ate the fruit? Because something else died in their place. And God atoned for their sin. And we see right here the very roots of the sacrificial system of Israel. We see the very need for a to- an atoning sacrifice in Jesus Christ. We see God providing grace, but we also see that life is possible. Adam, in this great expression of faith, now doesn't just name this partner as woman. He names her again as Eve, which means mother of all living. Eve's name is a declaration of hope from Adam himself that he believes that God is going to keep his promises. The one who refused to be obedient to God's commands at the beginning is now full of faith in God's promises to the end that he will, in fact, bring one who will defeat the enemy, who will restore life. That one is Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus Christ who cries out in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Though we have been driven from the garden and banished from the presence of God, there's a way back. There's not just a way back, there's a way forward to an even better experience, which is what we'll see In another couple of weeks. And so as we gather together and we're looking at the fall and we think about this longing inside of every single person that says things, this is the world is not the way that it is supposed to be. And there's a longing for something better. That spirit of nostalgia that I experience in my life, in your life, oftentimes what I find in the church, whenever the church comes to the place where they recognize that something is wrong and that spirit of nostalgia comes over them, they're looking back and they're longing for better days. Days gone by that we're more successful. And what I find most often is people looking back to better days in the church oftentimes define better based on numbers. Success in the church is defined by the number of people we can get in front of God and the number of programs that we can perform for God. Brothers and sisters, the problem is not numbers. The problem is nearness. What we find in Genesis chapter 3, that what was lost was our fellowship with the Father. What was lost was our nearness to God as we were cast from His presence. Success in ministry, success for the church, is not the number of people that you can put in front of God. It's the nearness of those people to God. And you can be right here in... The presence of God all day long and be further from Him than the most devout atheist in the world. Five men near to God can do infinitely more than 500,000 in front of Him and far from Him. Brothers and sisters, I want to be a church of men and women, and brothers, and sisters who are not just near to one another, but near to God. And that starts by no longer hiding anymore and running from our need to confess and repent and position ourselves before God to receive the grace that he so willingly gives. We see it right here. While Adam and Eve were hiding among the garden, they could not receive grace. It was only when they came forward and they confessed that God then granted them the very thing that they needed and attempted to do on their own but they did so deplorably brothers and sisters it's time to stop pretending like everything's okay in your life in my life in our church or in this world it's time that the people of God came near to God in the presence of God in confession and repentance and received a fresh filling and empowering of the Holy Spirit That is what will create a compelling church community that will change the world. Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? Would you go before the Lord in prayer right now asking Him to work in your heart and in your life to show you how you might approach Him in confession and repentance that you might receive fresh today the grace and the mercy of God take a moment in his presence and pray. And I'll close this in a moment.